I'm Peter Samuelson. Today, we're going to talk about the strange behavior of film stars. We're going to talk about my career as the producer of over two dozen films now and what I've been able to do in society as a serial uh, philanthropic entrepreneur using the same toolkit but trying to make the world better for seriously ill children, foster kids, and maybe along the way we'll talk about the moral challenges of living in 2021 and how we can chip away at them and make an impact which by lifting up the lives of other people we lift up our own. Welcome to another delicious series of Curiosity Bites, the most binge-worthy podcast on the internet. If you'd like to join in our conversation about today's show or about any of our past shows, you can go into Curiosity Bites page on Facebook. My name is Dove Barron. I'm your host. And if you're curious to know more about me or what it is that I do to serve high-performing individuals like you, you maybe just take yourself over to DoveBaron.com. That's D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Now, if you're a regular listener here or to one of my other shows, Leadership and Loyalty, you have no doubt heard me speak about something that I am highly emotionally invested in, and that is compassionate, conscious capitalism. The idea that we can do well by doing good, that making money doesn't have to be about being selfish, but rather about having a bigger cause and bigger meaning. You see, I'm curious what it is that what it is in the human condition that allows us to care about people we don't know. What's more, what is it that makes people generous, particularly when they have very little? Well, that's the rabbit hole we're going down today in this delicious series of Curiosity Bites. So grab a beverage, find a cozy corner, because our guest today is Peter Samuelson. He is a co-founder and president of First Star the CEO of Film, uh, Filmco <laughs> Media. The, uh, these are movie companies, by the way. Peter Samuelson is a serial pro-social entrepreneur. He was educated at Cambridge University, England, and Anderson School of Management at UCLA. Back in 1982, he co-founded the Starlight Children's Foundation. You might be familiar with that. And by 1990, there was enough positive psychological impact of Starlight that it seeded the next pro-social endeavor, which was called Starbright, um, which he co-founded with uh, you may have, a guy you may have heard of. What was his name now? Oh, yeah, Steven Spielberg. In 1999, saw the, found, the formation of First Star, and in 2005, Idar, which is Everyone Deserves a Roof. And in 2013, he launched Aspire, the Academy of Social Purpose in Responsible Entertainment. In the midst of all this, Peter has produced 26 films, including the intense thriller Arlington Road. Peter resides in Los Angeles with his bride and continues to fight every single day for those less fortunate, particularly America's abused and neglected children. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me to welcome Peter Sandelson! Good to have you here, mate. Nice to be here. So let, let's start at the beginning. Um, 
as anyone who hears your voice for more than about five minutes will, or a couple of minutes, will recognize that, like me, you're also a pommy, you're a limey, we're, we're Brits originally, um, and you went to Cambridge University, um, and uh, then you took the quantum leap of being in Hollywood. Talk to us about that journey, if you would, a little bit, because that is a, that's a jump. So one of the things uh, that I push through our academies our first star academies, is that every young person needs a mentor. And it's a good thing that in school uh, in London, a very long time ago, I had a mentor. His name was David Lund. He was my English teacher uh, in uh, year 10 and uh, 10th grade. Uh, and one day he said to me, see me after school, which, as we all know, is never a good thing thing to hear uh so i Especially picked if you're up age bracket because it usually meant a cane <laughs> uh yeah there wasn't a whole lot of caning there was a That's little right. bit of that yeah well like they yeah you you went to the wrong school um, so um david lund said um now look if you he said i don't say this lightly if you work about twice as hard you could go to a really good university and uh, I'll help you. Oh. And I laughed at him. I said, I don't think I'm going to university, am I? No one in my entire family has ever been to university. And he, I remember he poked me in the chest and he said, well, then you'll be the first one, won't you? And uh, I did what he said. You know, he did help me. Uh, there was quite a lot of tutoring went on. I sat the uh, um, Cambridge entrance exam. Uh, it was a ridiculous set of questions. Uh, you had to write for three hours and 20 minutes, as I remember it, which meant you had to know an awful lot about one of these 10 things that they listed that you could write about. I, I knew enough to write about several of them for maybe 20 minutes. I definitely didn't know how to write for three and a bit hours. So the last question, number 10, it just said, Erasmus, discuss. And I, I thought, well, clearly I've, you know, I've, I've, I'm not going to Cambridge, am I? Because I can't write about any of these damn subjects. So partly facetiously, I wrote about number 10. And I started off by saying, I know absolutely nothing about Erasmus. I don't know who he was. I don't know his contributions to the world. And um, I have nothing to say on the subject of Erasmus. And then I asked the question, why do I not know anything about him? And um, I, I answered it by saying, well, he's never been on a curriculum that I've ever had um, part of. And um, that's why I don't know anything about him. And then I said, well, why, why, why was he never on a curriculum? And in fact, why do we have to have curricula? And of course, the answer is because human knowledge has become so vast that if you want to get anywhere, you have to go narrow in order to go deep. Mm -hmm. And I turned it into an essay on 
the decay of Renaissance man, because, you know, in the Renaissance, there were actual human beings who knew everything about everything. Right. Why? Well, because there wasn't very much to know. Uh, you know, Henry VIII yeah. knew everything about every subject. None of his cabinet ministers knew anything more about any subject than him. When he met with his agriculture minister, he, Henry VIII, knew just as much about agriculture or his minister of war. He knew just as much about armies and fighting and navies and all of that. And then what happened is that the curve of human knowledge grew exponentially and the human brain didn't get a whit bigger. It just stayed the same size. So people uh, involved in teaching in schools and universities said, oh, dear, well, we've got all this knowledge. How are we going to teach? Well, we'll have to go narrow. We'll have to have a restrictive curriculum uh, where we study some subjects and we don't study others. And we, we look at the biographies of some people, and in my case, not Erasmus. And um, so I talked about the decay of Renaissance man, the exponential growth in knowledge, the problems that that has brought to um, civilization, because, of course, the problem with having deep experts is do they communicate with each other? Because the problems, the challenges, you know, climate change, for example, it involves, you know, 25 disciplines, enormous amounts of uh, data and knowledge in disparate areas. So if all the people are narrow experts, how do you make a multidisciplinary answer uh, to a multidisciplinary challenge? And the answer is with great difficulty. That's the mm -hmm. um, preeminent challenge of our times. Anyway, so I wrote for three hours and 15 minutes, and then the proctor at the front um, um, banged his mallet on the table and said, um, uh, gentlemen, you have a, a, an additional five minutes. And um, so I pretty much had had, you know, I thought it was all a hoot. I, I, I was clearly not going to get in. I'd just written for over three hours about my ignorance. And so I wrote at the bottom, and that is why I know nothing about Erasmus. First time I had mentioned him in the previous umpteen pages that I had written in my appalling handwriting. Um, so I came out. I remember I said to Mr. Lund, the teacher, he said, what the hell did you write about? You don't know anything about any of those 10 subjects. And I said, yeah, you're right. So I wrote about Erasmus. He said, but you don't know anything about Erasmus. And I said, no, well, I wrote about being completely ignorant on the subject of Erasmus. And I remember he he had his newspaper with him and he hit me on the head with his newspaper. <laughs> and so I was, you know, I thought, um, well, I clearly am not going to Cambridge, am I? And um, And then strangely, I was asked to go up for the interview and I remember when I went in, the senior tutor of the college said, ah, oh, Mr. Samuelson, who knows nothing about Erasmus. And I said, yes, but I've done very little except read everything in sight on Erasmus since the um, essay paper. 
please ask me anything. He said, no, 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 I don't want to ask you anything about Erasmus. So that had been a waste. And um, anyway, uh, you know, a month later, a telegram arrived and I got a full scholarship, which was a good thing because otherwise I couldn't have afforded to go. So that was how I got into Cambridge and I did my bachelor's, I did my master's. And then there was no work at all in the United Kingdom. It was that dreadful time that you were of similar age, Dov, you and I. Um, Are you talking about was, the Thatcher age? No, no, before Thatcher, the sort of um, the dark days where you remember we had when the coal miners went on strike. Yeah, that was Edward Heath. That was Edward Heath. And yeah, it was, it was Wilson when we had, and Edward Heath, yeah. Yeah, we had electricity for four hours. Yeah. Uh, then you had no electricity for four hours. And then for a third four hours, you had a particularly British compromise, which was half electricity. So you, you could turn, your, you could turn your lights on, but the light was so dim, if you wanted to read, you had to hold the light bulb up and sort of scan it across the page. Because I had you forgotten know, about half electricity. Half How electricity. How the hell do they even do that? <laughs> they Well, they cut the voltage down know, from 240 like to 120. And, of course, all the light bulbs weren't calibrated for 120. So it was very dim and very yellow, as I remember it. So, anyway, there was no work at all. Also, I had had, um, you know, what I was really good at and what I read at Cambridge was medieval English literature. And oh, you come, fabulous. You, you, you know, you come out. To happen. <laughs> yeah, and you, you, you realize, oh, they don't seem to be standing in a line uh, to hire people who know an awful lot about, uh, you know, Thomas Mallory and Chrétien de Troy and all the rest of it. So um, I, um, I thought, well, maybe I shouldn't live here. And what had happened, what they do when you go up to Cambridge as an undergraduate, they do a very clever thing, which is they don't let you come for a year. They make you, at least they did then, I assume it's the same thing now, they make you take a year off, the better part of a year. And I had lucked out and got myself a job as a French-English interpreter. I pretty much lied my way into this job because I remember the uh, American producer saying, so um, how's your French? And I said, oh, it's excellent. I didn't say to him, it is excellent if you want to talk about you know, castles and suits of armor and chivalric <laughs> traditions and all those medieval things. Not so good. He said, well, I need an interpreter for the film that I'm about to make in France uh, with Steve McQueen. And I said, I'm your man. He said, well, can you start, uh, you know, tomorrow? And I said, I can. And I said, how long will it be? He said, 10 months, soup to nuts. And I said, here I am. And I became the unit interpreter uh, with my rusty French um, for a Steve McQueen film called Le Mans, which shot in 1970 um, in, in Le Mans, France. So there I was. And that was my baptism into filmmaking. Um, it was an appallingly run, profligate, ridiculously expensive ego-struck film, and um, people kept getting fired, and every time people were fired, I got promoted. 
So, uh, you know, I ended up as the assistant production manager, learned a lot about making films. And then I went off and did my Cambridge time those years. And at the end of that, realizing that courtesy of, you know, Edward Heath, there was no work, certainly not for a scholar in medieval English in the UK. They were not standing in a line. Um, I had Americans I had met by working on on films, well, on that movie and on a couple of other ones and some television commercials for American companies. And somebody said, an American producer said, do you want to come out to Los Angeles, see how we edit, see how we do post-production? And I said, oh, sounds absolutely fantastic. Uh, Where is your office? And he said, it's on Hollywood and Vine. And I said, oh, I've I've even heard of that. I'd, I'd be honored. And so I came out and, you know, one of the great things about Americans, they're so generous. I remember when when I came out, I think for two months, I lived in his house and um, he gave me his second car and all that kind of thing. And so I, at, at a certain point, you know, without any intention to emigrate, you look around and you say, well, I seem to have a wife, I have <laughs> a house, I have a mortgage, I have four children, and um, they're all in school here. Um, I think I must live here. Is that the case? <laughs> so I regularized myself. You know, initially I got a green card and then I got my citizenship, went down. They'd, right. got, a, they'd got a terrible backlog of immigrants wishing to become citizens, so they did it in the L.A. Convention Center. I think there were about three or 4,000 people there. They gave us all little stars and stripes on a stick, yep. and some judge made a little speech. They showed us, you know, amber waves of grain uh, video, and it was. In, it, I, I had thought, you know, I can just fit this in in my very busy business life. I'll go and become a citizen. Um, it was incredibly moving. Really? Honestly, to come from England to America is the least of it because, you know, you're going from one okay place to another okay place. But there were people there who had escaped from, you know, Vietnam in a inner tube across yeah. shark-infested water and people who had been shot at coming over the Berlin Wall and so forth. There was a lot of crying, a lot of family people and a lot of pride and citizenship. And I've believed ever since in the American dream. I think, um, you know, they don't have a British dream or a German dream or a French or Italian dream. What is the American dream? It's this magnificent thing. It says, come to our country Um, You know, bring us your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. We'll get you educated. And uh, regardless of what the um, parents' generation does, they may do menial work if they don't know how to do something else. But we will um, put you through an education. If you're any good, you too can make a career. You can be a professional. You can learn stuff, do stuff, pay tax. And I've always thought of the American dream as being an incredible asset that people born in America don't realize how valuable it is. Because think of it this way, 
it's free brains. It's 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 extra brains to become taxpaying, um, productive citizens building your GNP, and um, other countries have much less of it. So yeah. I'm I'm again those who say no, keep all those nasty immigrants out. They're just going to use up our uh, social security and. Uh, and and take our place in the workplace, and of course it's 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 complete nonsense. First of all, the jobs that first generation immigrants do are the ones that people born in America don't want to do. Who are the biggest lobbyists right now to relax immigration restrictions? It's agriculture. Why? Well, because they can't get people born in America to go and pick Brussels sprouts off yep. the bushes or wherever yeah. Brussels sprouts grow. Um, so I, I, I believe in the American dream and I, I see it, you know, in, in my charities, certainly in First Star, where we're housing, educating and encouraging high school aged foster kids. So, uh, a, you know, a sizable proportion, probably 35, 40%. Um, were not born in the United States. They've ended up in America and then through no fault of their own, they've ended up in foster care because they're abused or neglected, whatever. Um, I see what they turn into after they go through First Star Academies. We have 18 First Star Academies, each on the campus of a great big university. So these are high school age kids all previously abused or neglected, all with an open case file from Child Protective Services, you know, the local government that keeps an eye on them. Um, so in Canada, they'd be called crown wards. In yep. the UK, they'd be looked after children. And I see as soon as we surround them by excellence, which is, of course, what you have on a university campus, I see the glass ceiling come off and I was on, actually, I was on a Zoom yesterday um, with Linda Gallardo, who was in our very first First Star cohort. She was one of the 30 students we started with 11 years ago at UCLA. And she went through four years of First Star. And then she went to Sacramento State and studied urban planning. And now she's an urban planner in Sacramento. Right. And... I don't know what Linda would have been. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, she might have worked in McDonald's or she might have been unemployed or in, I have no idea. You know, she's a smart young lady, but given the opportunity, she rose to the challenge. We say to the kids, if you fall off the ladder, we'll put you back. Mm -hmm. But in the end, you're the only one that can move your feet up the ladder and you want this. This belongs to you. This is yeah. your opportunity. You can be part of the American dream. You know, I just think it's, you know, it, it's very interesting to me because the work that I do, I believe with all my heart that we, we are in the world to give the thing we, that we needed. And, you know, and you talked about in your sort of backstory there of being the only person who could have, who went to university out of your family. Um, and somebody supported you and believed in you and saw in you 
the ability to, I mean, not just to go to university, but to go to freaking Cambridge. I mean, you know, that's, you know, for us Brits, that's like, you know, Oxbridge, you know, Oxford and Cambridge is like, you know, that's top of the gear. Right. And, and so, you know, that you, you had somebody who could see that in you and, and gave you the leg up to, to support you to going to that. And the, you know, you have, you have paid that forward in a, in a, in so many ways, much bigger than was done with you, but you know, because you can create a reach and you've created that for others is to me, that's how a person knows their own purpose, right? Is if you are providing what it is you needed in a bigger way than you needed it, that's part of the great healing of us as humanity. And when we're in the way of blocking people doing that, that is in my mind, at least because I like you, I'm an immigrant and I like you fell in love with the American dream as a kid. Um, and to me, it seems to be so anti-American to be pushing out immigrants or, or to not be wanting to, to serve people who are in a, a, a lesser place than, than we might be. It just, it doesn't make sense to me for the America I fell in love with. Yeah, well, I, I completely agree. The other thing that is so interesting to observe to me is I really was. I was the first per person in my entire extended family in the UK to go to university. But after I went, everyone went pretty much, you know, yeah. hundreds of members, all the cousins and second cousins and this and that, um, those younger than me, I think they had a look and they said, oh, look. Somebody did. Somebody did. So now I can. And, of course, that's also very much, I mean, you're astute. A lot of what I'm doing philanthropically is based on what I am very grateful was done for me. But I, 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 I look at what makes people go to university. Um, the answer is they know people either in university or who went to university and they think, oh, well, look, she looks just like me. He looks just like me. Maybe I could do that. Might be better than sweeping the floor in McDonald's, mightn't it? Um, well, I think that that's the interesting thing is because there are people who grow up around families who everybody goes to university and, and, and they, you know, they may end up in university because it's the thing to do versus what you're talking about is when you grow up around an environment of people who have never been or very, very rarely go, and then seeing the possibility for yourself, that becomes then a choice as opposed to an obligation. And that has so much more power in it because then there's a fire. And in that fire of writing that thesis you wrote on education in your exam as to, in the answer to question 10, you know, that was really a statement about, you know, like I said, it was a thesis that, that got you in to say there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And I think that the change in the world that, you know, the, for instance, the work you're doing um, with your foundations is the commitment to say what's wrong and how can I be part of fixing it as opposed to what's wrong and it's their fault. You know, yes. and so you've stepped into that in a magnificent way. We're already at the end of this particular section, part one of our interview. Um, and I'm going to ask you to let our, our listeners and our viewers know 
where it is they can find out more about you and the foundations. And we'll come back in part two and we'll go deeper into all of this. And we'll start talking about what some of these foundations are doing. But I want to make sure that people know more about, about how to connect with you or the foundations or to support you in the work. Right. Well, um, the core website is Samuelson, S-A-M-U-E-L-S-O-N dot L-A, Samuelson dot L-A. Uh, and you can also just, you know, Google Peter Samuelson. Um, I'm not the Cornell math whiz one. Uh, I, I'm not the reverent one. I'm the film producer, philanthropist one. And um, you'll find there more than you ever wanted to um, <laughs> to know. All right. Well, dear listener, I hope you'll stay with us and come back for one click away to part two. Remember... Just stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. We're just one click away from part two of our conversation with filmmaker, philanthropist, and uh, philanthropic entrepreneur, Peter Samuelson. We'll be back in one click. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. Stay curious.